And tonight I'm going to talk to you about some things that are found in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I know that we're not living under the Old Testament today. But I also understand that you can preach and Jesus was preached uh, from the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Acts where Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, he preached the gospel to him from the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. He preached all about Jesus. And in preaching about Jesus, uh, he also talked about baptism. So uh, I make no apologies for talking uh, from the Old Testament tonight. And there's some, there's some wonderful things in the Old Testament. The scene of our text tonight is found in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 21 through 25. And in this particular scene, uh, David has angered the Lord by numbering the people of God. Now this is interesting to me and it took me a long time to come to what I believe is the reason that David sinned when he did that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He had sinned because of that. And so God sent a prophet to him. And the prophet told uh, uh, David that he had sinned in so doing and that God had offered him three choices. He would have the opportunity to have a seven-year famine or he could have a three-month invasion by his enemies or he could have a three-day pestilence. Now, David was a smart man. He was a smart military man. He was a great king. You know, David was king for 40 years and then Solomon was king for 40 years. And David ruled well. He was a very, very powerful man and very brilliant man. And it's interesting that the scripture speaks of David as a man after God's own heart, in spite of the fact that he was guilty of some heinous crimes and sins. But I think the reason that this was said of David was not that he lived such a wonderful uh, <coughs> sin-free life, <coughs> excuse me, but that when David sinned, as soon as he saw his sin and realized his sin, he would make it right. He had a penitent heart. And so God loves that. God hates sin just as we're supposed to hate sin. But when we do sin, we need to be humble enough as David was to see it, admit it, and quit it. And God loves us for that. Well, I'm getting away from my subject. But David had this choice to make. A seven-year a seven famine, that, that wasn't attractive at all to David. You know, a famine is when probably there's little or no rain for a long period of time. Crops don't grow. And so people starve to death. And somehow food has to be brought in from other, from other nations. And so David, I, I'm sure, rejected that almost out of hand almost immediately. And the opportunity to run from his enemies for three months also was very unattractive to David. He was the uh, king of a mighty nation. He was the commander in chief of a great, great army. And the army of the Lord, David perhaps was forgetting it about this time, but the army of the Lord was capable of, of, of beating or overcoming just about any nation on earth because God was with them. God plus one is always a majority. But I think really I do. I think David was forgetting that. I think David was getting a little big for his britches, if I can use such a country uh, expression. I think he was thinking that he was a mighty king. 
and that somehow or the other his own power and his own prestige had something to do with the fact that Israel was a mighty, mighty nation. And so the idea of just running ignominiously from his, audience, from his enemies for three months, well, that just really didn't suit him at all. But on the other hand, while the three-day pestilence was attractive because it was only three days, he didn't have any idea how severe the pestilence would be. He didn't know just how bad that would be. And so David shows his wisdom and his brilliance, I think. When this was given to him, David said, let me now fall into the mercies, into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of men. You know, I'll tell you, David showed his wisdom there. And before this lesson is over tonight, I hope to remember to point out just when that wisdom showed up. It made the difference in probably thousands and thousands of lives being lost, the, uh, the choice that David made. When David made the choice that he did, the pestilence was sent. I don't know exactly what that pestilence consisted of. I do know that it began at one end of the kingdom. And by the time it got to Israel, by the time it got to Jerusalem, I should say, 70,000 men were already dead. Whatever it was, it was some kind of awful. And you know, here's an interesting thing. And this really is just touching to me. The angel, as he came to Jerusalem, happened to be standing by the threshing floor of a fellow by the name of Arona. Now, in 1 Chronicles, uh, the 21st chapter and verse 6, this man is referred to as Ornan. But it's the same man and probably just a different uh, a name or something, but it's the same man. It's obviously the same incident. And the incident that we're talking about from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24 is recounted in uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 26, or 21 and 6. There is a difference in the numbering, but the reason the difference is, is found is because in the Chronicles account, the tribes of Benjamin and Levi were not counted, while in the 2 Samuel account, they were, they were counted. And so that accounts for the difference in numbers. At any rate, just remember that when the angel was standing by the threshing floor of Arona, or Ornan, as he was called uh, in the Chronicles account, he stretched out his hand to bring the pestilence to Israel, to Jerusalem, and God spoke out and said, it is enough. The Bible says he repented himself. In other words, he changed his mind. And he said, it is enough. Stay now thy hand. Now this, I hope I can remember to get back to this because there's some things in that that I think are just nothing short of profound. At any rate, let me go on from that for the moment. The pestilence was stopped. And David, you see, David realized for some reason, right after he sent Joab to number Israel. Joab was a kind of, as we used to say down home, was a shirt-tailed uh, cousin of, of David's. And so it stands to reason he would be the one that David would choose to be the captain of the host of Israel. It was then, kind of like it is now, it's not so much what you know as who you know when it comes to uh, getting a good job like that. Joab didn't want to do that job though. And interestingly enough, somehow or the other, Joab felt like this was a mistake. And he, and he tried to dissuade David. And he said, you know, the Lord will make your army 
however as big as it needs to be. In other words, God's power will make it possible for this army to overcome anybody. So why do you want to do this? But you know, the Bible says that David's word overwhelmed Joab. Of course it did. He was the king. And so Joab and the others set out to number Israel. Now, this wasn't something, you know, that with a few buttons on a computer, you come up with a census. At the end of nine months and 20 days, this was finally conducted. And it literally went from Dan to Beersheba. It just covered the whole of the, of the kingdom. And so the number was brought to David and surrendered. And then immediately David's heart smote him. And I wondered for the longest time, and if you read commentaries on this, you'll find one kind of an explanation after the other, but none of them ever made a lot of sense to me. I think here's the reason that David sinned. Because you see, I knew when I read this that it wasn't the first time Israel had ever been numbered. Why was it a sin this time? Moses numbered Israel. God, God ordered it. He was, he was fine with that. But this time when David did it, it was wrong. Why? I think it was because of David's ego. I really do. I think God realized that David was full of himself. He was a big man. He was a big shot. And so he's going to find out how many people he's got. And, and actually it is impressive. When the number was finally brought back and David had the numbers, he was king and the captain, as it were, he and Joab, of a million three hundred thousand fighting men. Now you think what a horde of people that is. And yet he sinned. And that's the reason that these choices were given to him. You know, God is never happy when we get full of ourselves. When we think that we are the reason that great works are being done, don't ever kid yourself. You know, the Lord, uh, I'll tell you just how I feel about that. If something happens to me and I'm taken out of the field of preaching, you know what I believe? I believe somebody else just as capable or maybe even more so, maybe much more so, will rise up to fill my spot. I think that's true with you. I think it's true with all of us. God can do wonderful things with whatever he's got at hand. That's just all there is to it. And we just happen to be the ones that he's working with right now and perhaps in this very place. But God accomplishes great things. I used to hear my father talk about, you know, people, uh, 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 brethren would sometimes talk about how much the church needs to increase their giving. Because they don't have enough money. <laughs> I remember he would say sometimes, we need to remember that God is never broke. And that with, with what little bit he has, he will get the job done. That's true. You know, when the work in the Philippines began, the church at Fremont was a small congregation. This was 30 some years ago. We had so little money in the treasury that the first time I went we had to not pay the utility bills for about 15 days so that the church could buy my ticket so that I could go over there. The, works, the work has, has prospered. And uh, it's, it's been that way all through the years. The work in Africa, when it began, it began on a shoestring. 
but it prospered. The work in the Philippines, the work in, in just anywhere you want to think about, it has prospered in spite of a lack of money sometimes. That's just the way the Lord is. He didn't need David to be full of himself and count himself a, a great man because he had a million three hundred thousand soldiers. Because God could have done it with a dozen or less. That just was all there was to it. Well, tonight, I want to talk to you about this choice that David made. He chose the mercy of God and the pestilence was sent. And so when the prophet came to see David and gave him these, these choices, uh, later the prophet said, you have the responsibility now of going up to Arona's threshing floor and buying that threshing floor. Offer there a burnt sacrifice. This is what you have to do. Now, let me just stop for a minute and tell you a little bit about Arona's threshing floor. You probably never see a threshing floor in this country, but in many of the world's countries today, I've seen many of them, hundreds of them in the Philippines. Sometimes it's not really a floor, but just a place that's kind of swept clean of leaves and what have you, and, and the rice is put out there and it's, and it's harvested there, or the wheat or whatever it is that they're, that they're harvesting. And sometimes they'll just spread the rice out on one lane of a two lane highway. And then they turn it about every hour so that the sun will dry it. And when it gets dry, then they take it to the mill and it is threshed. And you have the white rice that we see today. The threshing floor, though, what is important about it is not what kind of a floor it was. I don't know what kind it was. It didn't amount to anything, I suppose. But what really made the difference is where it was. <coughs> now, here's something that if you just read these accounts... It will escape you and you don't see it. But I want to tell you something tonight before I go any further. Where this floor was made all the difference in the world. Because where this floor was, was a place where God's mercy and God's grace would emanate and had already emanated for hundreds of years. You know where it was? It was on Mount Moriah. You say, well, what's that? It's just another Old Testament name. No. It's the mountain where Jerusalem would be built. If you read 2 Chronicles 3, I believe it is, might be 1 Chronicles, I think it's 2 Chronicles 3 and verse 1, there the Bible tells us that Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Moriah where Ornan's threshing floor had been. That's where the temple would be built. Now I want you to think about this. From the threshing floor, the grace and the mercy of God saved no telling how many lives that day because it never came to Jerusalem, maybe the most populated city in all of Israel. God spared the holy city. And it, it came as the angel was standing by Aaron's threshing floor. Where that floor was, sometime later, the temple of God would be built. And the mercy and grace of God would emanate from that place. Let me tell you something else. When you read from uh, in the book of Genesis how that Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and take him up on Mount Moriah. You ever notice that? It took him three days to get there. But it was at that place. And what a beautiful sermon that is. 
It was at that place that Abraham and his only son, oh, I know he had another son, but as far as God was concerned, he had only one. Isaac was the son of promise. And I'll tell you something else, and this is important to remember. Isaac was a type of Christ. He was a shadow of Christ. You remember that when Jesus was crucified, uh, the book of John tells us that as Jesus was, as he went out from those people, he went out bearing his cross. He carried the wood on his back, which was to be the instrument of death to him. As Abraham and Isaac walked up the hill that they had journeyed three days to get to, the Bible specifically says that Isaac carried the wood upon which or with which the altar would be built and upon which Abraham fully intended to kill his only son. Yeah, Isaac was a type of Christ. And while they were up there, you remember, he bound Isaac and laid him up on that wood and drew his knife and was about to take his own son's life. And God spoke to him, remember, from the heavens. And he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him. For now I know that thou fearest me, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And then Abraham spied that ram that was caught by his horns in a thicket. Now, here's an interesting thing that you may not have thought about. The type of Christ, Isaac, was so close to the, to the, to the antitype, the real thing. You know, Jesus, his sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice. I mean by that, he died in our place. We used to sing a song about the middle cross. The middle cross was the cross we should have been on. He died for us. A substitutionary sacrifice. And even in the so-called sacrifice of Isaac, the substitution was carried out. The Bible specifically says that Abraham went and took the ram and offered it in the stead, S-T-E-A-D, of his son. A substitution was, was taken. Now look at these three, three items. The threshing floor of, of Arona on Mount Moriah. The temple built where the threshing floor had been on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. It was on Mount Moriah that Abraham was to offer Isaac. I wonder where that was. Well, I can't prove this, but I can give you a pretty good hint. If you look at your Bible maps, just about a thousand or 1200 yards to the east, I believe it is, Maybe the way, I don't remember now for sure the direction, but just about 1,200 yards from where the temple was is Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. That's Mount Moriah, see. And I would not at all be surprised if the place where Abraham offered his son or tried to, I would not be surprised if it was not just as geographically correct as the threshing floor for Orona and the temple that Solomon built. I don't know exactly where it was, but I'll guarantee you it wasn't far from that spot. Because God sees the end from the beginning. And he knows how to keep the type true to the antitype. He can get it done. 
He figures that all out in advance. And you know, we just kind of blunder along and we miss all of that. We don't see all of that. But all of this in God's mind pointed toward the time when his son would be offered on the cross. His only son, Abraham's only son. You see all of these connections? It's just, well, it's just nothing short of wonderful. Well, that's what this is all about tonight. And this is the reason that all of this took place. And, and, and God did not want that picture spoiled by David getting full of himself and trying to number Israel and being the biggest king that ever ruled Israel. Because God intended to see how this was all going to go and direct its, its business from the, from the start. Now, let me get back to the story. David hikes himself off up to the, uh, to the threshing floor. And of course, Arona saw him coming. He was also spoken of as the king of the Jebusites. I suppose, uh, you know, a small kind of king. Almost, almost every city in those days had something kind of like a king, sort of like our mayor, I guess you would say. And so Arona saw him coming probably with quite an entourage. He was the king, you know. And so when he came, uh, Arona said, why are you here? And David said, I'm here to buy the threshing floor. And so he said, so that the plague may be stayed from Israel. Well, Arana wanted that plague stayed. No doubt about that. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here's oxen out here. You can just have them. Uh, you can offer burnt sacrifices with them. And there's all the wooden implements for the oxen, uh, you know, for wood to burn them. Uh, I'll just give it all to you. Boy, what a deal. David has sinned, and now he's gotten by with it. Nobody in Israel has been killed. His kingdom is secure, and he don't even have to pay for the oxen. But David's too smart for that. And David said, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. What a lesson. He's been humbled. He's been brought back down. Oh, he's ready now for the Lord to do something with. You can, you can, you can help somebody like that. Well, I, I really wish that all Christians today would seriously say with David, we're not going to offer anything to the Lord as a so-called sacrifice that doesn't cost us anything. Do you realize it's not a sacrifice unless it costs something? I don't care what it is, whether it's our service to the Lord, our attendance to church, our living the Christian life. That's all, that's all a sacrifice. And that means we've got to put something into it in order for it to mean anything to the Lord. Service to God, if it is to have any genuine and lasting value, is always a costly affair. In fact, the plain truth is that those things really worth possessing are almost never won easily. In Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 1, Solomon made a very strange statement, unless you study it. He said, cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Well, who ever heard of throwing your bread on the water? But if you look up the word bread in the Hebrew, it's from a Greek, uh, rather a Hebrew word, lechem, I think it was. It just simply means bread corn. Or 
in the kind of uh, vernacular that I was raised with, seed corn. Well, now I can get a hold of that. I know what seed corn is. Seed corn is what we used to save back to plant for the next year's crop. That's what that was all about. And that's what Solomon was talking about. Plant your corn now. Put your bread or your seed corn on the water now. Now, you know what that really meant? In those days and times, the Nile River would overflow at a certain time of the year. And those ancient farmers would take their seed corn and go out on that water in their boats and they would throw the finest of the corn that they had. You don't plant the worst. You won't have much of a crop after a while. The seed runs out. So you plant the best so that you will have a good crop every year. They would throw this out on the, on the floodwaters and it would sink to the bottom eventually. And as the floodwaters would recede, the roiling, swirling currents would cover that corn or that seed of whatever kind it was with, with a rich layer of silt. And when the water receded and the sun came out, oh, they would have a bumper crop most of the time. Sometimes you don't have a crop. You know how that goes. If you've ever planted a garden or had a farm, sometimes things just don't work out. But you still have to make the effort. One of the things that you learn early on is that unless you plant, you can be assured of not having a harvest. Now Solomon wasn't trying to teach us about how to plant corn. The lesson is preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God. That's what he's talking about. And so it's necessary for us to plant the gospel, sow the gospel now. Because you'll find it after many days. You don't plant corn this morning and have roasting ears for lunch. It's going to take a while for that to germinate and bring forth fruit, you see. I could give you all kinds of examples, but I'll give you just one that comes to mind at the moment. Sometime about 1950, a letter came to Homer A. Gay from a fella in Nyasaland, Africa, asking for help, for somebody to come and help them with, with understanding the Bible. Well, a whole lot of things happen, but the upshot of it all is that in 1951, Brother Paul Nichols made the first trip to that part of the world. As far as I know, the first time that any of our preachers ever went overseas to preach the gospel. That was, that was it, as far as I know. Now, David said, uh, Solomon said, thou shalt find it after many days. That work, you know, kind of took off and then it faltered and it seemed for a long time that it was just going to founder. I mean, it was just one setback after the other. And when Brother Gay died in 1958, it looked for all the world like there would not be a work in Africa. But it happened. It did begin. And it began, and I'll tell you how it happened. This is not a plug for the old past advocate. Actually it is, but it's, that's not what I'm intending it to be. Edwin Morris's sister, Sister Elizabeth Byford, saw the notice in a religious journal that this fellow from Africa wrote, calling for help. At that time, the subscription price for old past advocate was a dollar a year. She sent my father, who was then the publisher, a dollar and said, please send the old past advocate to this man. His name was E.C. Severe. 
That's how the work started. I don't know at last count, I heard that there were something like 3,500 churches just in that one place. But you need to remember that it started with a dollar. That's how it started. Just one seed with a dollar. That wasn't much, but that's all she could do. She couldn't go, but she could, she could send that dollar. And so that's how the work began. And I can tell you story after story about foreign work that got started on flimsy uh, efforts just about like that. Cast thy bread upon the water, for thou shalt find it after many days. Great works begin with a little bit of effort that's made at the right time and at the right place. Now, it doesn't always pay off that way, but sometimes it does. You know, our service needs to be the same way. We preach the gospel over radio, television, the printed page, religious journals, gospel meetings like this one, by personal evangelism where you sit down and talk with someone uh, person to person. We just, you know, every way we can think of, we preach the gospel. And, and we have to realize and take into account that we may never recover the initial financial outlay. May not happen. May not be successful. You may spend your money on this gospel meeting. You don't know. And it may not produce anything. It may not do anything other than encourage you brethren here. On the other hand, who knows what, some, what person may come in and great things happen. You just don't know. You have to plant the seed and leave the rest to the Lord. That's what we have to do. You know, we have to cast the bread to them. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, the Bible says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. So you got to go somewhere. In fact, you have to go into all the world. And you have to preach the gospel to everybody. Now you need to remember this. It is not our responsibility to baptize everybody. It's not our responsibility to baptize the whole world. It is our responsibility to preach the gospel to the whole world. It's their responsibility to obey it and be baptized. If we preach the gospel, we have their blood off of our hands. That's what this is all about. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. How long will the good commission, great commission last? Till the end of the world. We will never be through preaching the gospel. There will never be a time, as long as this old world stands, that we do not have a responsibility to preach the gospel. I've got to hurry. You know, whatever you're talking about, I don't care what it is. Whether it's your education, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your business, whatever it may be, if you are successful in that venture, it comes at a price. It comes at a sacrifice. It comes at the cost maybe in dollars. It comes certainly at the cost in your time, your effort, and your patience. And let me just put this plainly. The dabbler in religion is almost never successful and really is a disgrace to the church. The dabbler 
in religion. You got some that just want to dabble with it. They never really get serious, but they just dabble with it. And personal sacrifice has always been an express command of God. Listen, he demands our very best. You better know he does. Self-denial is demanded. In Luke 9 and 23, Jesus said, listen to this. And he said this to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you know that probably, I think I could say this as the old preachers used to say without fear of successful contradiction. Probably the most difficult part of living the Christian life is denying oneself. That's hard to do. Now, if the Lord had said, deny yourself of certain things, well, we could do that. We could handle that. But he said, deny yourself. Just put yourself aside and take care of my wishes. Do what I tell you to do. You take up your cross daily. What is your cross? You ever thought about that? I'll tell you what it is. It is whatever might keep you from doing your duty as a child of God. Whatever that might be, you pick it up every day and you bear that cross. Don't you give in to it. Listen again. In Mark 10 and 21, he told the rich young ruler, you know, the, the fellow said, I, all of these things have I kept from my youth up. Remember that? Jesus had given him uh, just a number of the Ten Commandments, six as I remember. And the young man said, as Jesus knew he would say, all of these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And Jesus said, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast. He said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatsoever you have, give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and take up the cross and follow me. Well, you know what happened. He left sorrowfully because he had great possessions. Oh, he had done almost all of those things. And you know, if the Lord had, had said to him, do not be guilty of covetousness. He would have found the young man's problem. But he didn't. And I think he didn't on purpose. I think Jesus purposely gave this young man those six commands, knowing full well that he was successful in that. And he hung himself, so to speak. He exposed his own weakness when he left without obeying the Lord. In Romans 12 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a, get this, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice. In the Old Testament days, they killed the animals. They gave up their lives. Today, we no longer have animal sacrifices. We don't kill ourselves physically. But we give up our personal wants. We deny ourselves, And our Christianity becomes a living, every day, all the time, sacrifice. That's what this thing is all about. I'll tell you something. We're too tolerant sometimes with ourselves and with our loved ones when it comes to service. We cannot afford to wink at sin in our own lives or in the lives of our loved ones while hewing to the line with others. That's pretty commonly done, but it's not right. It's never the thing to do. Well, what does your religion cost you? Now, I, I know you think I'm just meddling now. What does it cost you in money? 
I don't know what you give. I don't care. That's your business and not mine. That's between you and the Lord. But more than likely, if you make a living wage today, your contribution, if you give as you should, is not without some financial consequence. You know what I'm talking about. What's it cost you in your time? Com you know, we just all the time hear people say, oh, I just don't have time. Well, sure you do. Everybody has exactly the same amount of time. 24 hours a day. And there's an old saying that says, if you want a job done, give it to a busy person. They're the only ones that will take the time to get it done. Everybody else will say, I just didn't have time. What about your talents? You ever tell anybody about Christ? Now, there's something we can all do. How much do you tell about Christ to others? I think I will never forget. I think I read this in Reader's Digest years ago. A young lady was sent out to interview a fire station by some news station. She went out to interview a, a large uh, fire station. Uh, she interviewed just a whole lot of firemen that day. And every time she would ask these firemen, what is your job as a fireman? And to her amazement, she heard about the man that took care of the fire trucks, the man who cooked, the man who kept the station clean, the man who did the mechanical work on the fire trucks. Not one single fireman ever said, my job is to fight fires. Not a one. And I wonder sometimes if there isn't a moral in that story for us. Sure, we've got this program and that program, and we do this, that, and the other, but do you know our job as a Christian is number one? Go to heaven yourself and take somebody with you. Have you ever thought of it that way? If you don't go to heaven yourself, you, you, you very likely cannot take anybody with you. Nobody said, my job is to fight fire. You know, we're promised a reward for our labors. And this makes me feel so good. God will not allow us to be a loser in his service. Just isn't going to happen. You put in what you need to put in. You will be a winner for the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, the apostle said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, aren't you glad that at the end of this life and at the end of this world, you don't have to count on some man to give you your reward. We have the Lord, the righteous judge, and he does all things well. He's not going to let you be a loser. Let's don't look for a bargain. Let's be smart like David. Give the Lord what he deserves of your time, your talent, your money, and whatever else that is under consideration. We need for our religion to cost us something. It certainly cost God something. It cost him his son. Cost him his son. And it certainly cost Jesus something. Cost him his life. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Listen, if you don't get anything else out of this lesson tonight, remember this. 
We cannot afford to quit what is certain to be a winning cause to take up what is certain to be a losing cause. One thing I know, the church is going to win. And I grow so weary of hearing people uh, bemoan the fact that perhaps by the time the Lord comes, there won't even be a church anymore. I don't believe a word of that. The Bible indicates that there will be those on this earth who are worshiping and working for the Lord when he comes again. Sure there will. May not here, may not be where I live, but there'll be somebody somewhere. Because the Bible specifically says he's coming to take his own. He will have some when he comes here. Don't quit what is certain to be a winning cause to join what is certain to be a losing cause.